The thing that I have to tell myself frequently is no matter how much I can imagine the goodness of God, He's always better than that. <laughs> Isn't that true? Always better than that. Well, good morning, everybody. And uh, happy birthday, America, I guess. Yeah. Great day. Great day. Thank you, JJ. You know, as I think about this day and as I was preparing um, the message for today and thinking about our nation and our country and all that, you know, I thought... Man, what I really am grateful 
Because it's a privilege to be able to call this nation home. But there's also a heaviness that I carry today. You know, I, I'm all into the celebrations. We can just figure out how to get a grill in the rain and all that stuff to work today. But, but there's also a bit of a concern I carry. Because on this birthday of America, it almost feels like I'm going to a family member's birthday party, but half the family isn't talking to each other. Right? Like there's this, there's this tension, and we've all felt it. After such a polarizing year, like this last one, this tension that while we celebrate our nation's birthday today, there's also a deep division, possibly stronger and certainly my lifetime, probably most of our lifetimes. And I know and I believe without a doubt that what our nation needs more than anything to heal is a fresh move of God's Spirit. And His Word and history tells us that God's Spirit often moves through His peacemakers filled with His Spirit who are unafraid to boldly declare and demonstrate Jesus, the Prince of Peace, with faithfulness and love. And while we know this to be true, as I was thinking about that, I thought, but you know, in the midst of our divided nation, if I look at the church, capital C, across America, do we not see some of the many same divisions within our own? You know, Jesus said in John 13, 35, he says, they, being those who don't know Jesus, they will know that we belong to him and we're his disciples and we're his followers. By what? By the way we love each other. You know, if we are going to see a divided nation begin to heal, it's going to begin with local churches like ours taking the command of Jesus very seriously to love one another. And so as we wrestle with that today, how can we demonstrate the love and declare the truth of Jesus if the church is also divided? If we are also not taking seriously the command to love one another? And I'm not just saying this to Trinity, right? I, like this is, this is something I feel for the church across America as a whole. But you know, it certainly starts at the local church level. When churches like ours take this command very seriously. So, beginning just with me, right? And beginning with us, how, can we, how are we as a church, as Trinity Evangelical Church, meant to treat one another? And how are we to grow, where do we even start to grow in our ability to love one another like God loves us? Well, we're continuing our sermon series through the Gospel of Mark today. And we're going to be in chapter 9, and I thought, man, how fitting is this? Because the passage we're going to read today, Jesus pulls his disciples aside because, he, because they are divided among themselves. And he needs, to, he needs to teach them something. See, at this point in the whole story of Mark, Jesus has set his eyes south and has just begun the journey from the northern part of Israel to, to eventually end up in Jerusalem. And we know what awaits him in Jerusalem. The cross. 
And with that at the forefront of his mind, though, he recognizes there's something his disciples still don't get. And he needs to stop the car, pull over, and do a bit of a teaching here, right here in this area of Galilee in a city called Capernaum. You know, this is like one of those moments my, my parents used to say to me, Kirk, come here, sit down. There was no please. And you know what's about to come, right? That's the kind of moment Jesus is about to have with his disciples. See, Peter, James, John, and the rest, they are going to see the nation, culture, shaking power of God at work in and through them. But before they can see any of that, Jesus has to teach them something else first. What is it that he has to lay out for them here? What is it that he wants to teach them? All right, we're going to be in Mark chapter 9, reading from verses 30 to 42. Now, this whole section of Jesus' teaching in the house in Capernaum goes actually to verse 50. So we're going to break this up into two parts. Part 1, verses 30 to 42, are going to be this week. Part 2, verses 43 to 50, are going to be next week. Because it's simply not enough time to cover all of it in one fell swoop this morning. So, open with me to Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, starting at verse 30, and we're going to be reading to verse 42. And the two questions that we're going to answer this morning. Number one. When we begin to follow Jesus, how does he begin to shift our whole value system? And then based on that shift, how does that reframe and reimagine our relationships with one another in the church? All right, you guys ready? That's where we're going. Everybody stand up with me. Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 30. I'm going to read out loud while you guys follow. Mark 9, verse 30. They, being Jesus and his twelve disciples, went on from there and passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand his saying, and they were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? They were silent, for on the way they argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one, who, no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterwards speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him to have a great millstone or hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Pray after me. Say, Jesus, open my heart, open my mind, transform my life. In your name I pray. Amen. Thank you. You may have a seat. 
So again, Jesus is heading to Jerusalem. He knows what awaits him there. But he stops to have a very clear, frank, and honest conversation with his 12 closest disciples. Because there's something they still don't get. And they still don't get it to the point where Jesus, you can almost feel the the urgency in him. He's like, I'm pulling over the car and we're going to talk about it. What was so necessary that Jesus stopped his journey just to teach his disciples? And if he was, it was so necessary for them to learn, isn't it equally necessary for us as well? What is so vital that any and all of his followers get? See, when we follow Jesus, he will confront us and what we value with the reality of his cross. I'm going to explain what I mean by that in just a moment. But here's Jesus, setting his eyes to the holy city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem literally means the foundation of peace. And as he goes there, he lets his disciples know exactly why it's happening. He says to them, verse 31, the Son of Man, which was an ancient prophetic term, for God's, or his title for God's Messiah. He says he's going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. In other words, Jesus is saying, what you're going to experience in Jerusalem may feel like an accident, but it's no accident. This is determined, this is a decision of God from the beginning of time. That long ago, 600 years before Jesus was even on the scene, there was a prophet Isaiah who spoke of a suffering servant who would come. And he would take our punishment upon himself to bring us peace. He would be wounded to bring about our healing. You see, the reality is that because of our sin against God, we're the ones who deserve death. Not Jesus. But he went ahead of us. And he died for us that we might share in his life. He loves you and me so much that he would pay your and my debt before God with his life in order to forgive our sin, thus removing the barrier between us and God that we might have a living relationship with him forever. See, Jesus is the Christ. He is the king. And he came to bring about victory, but the irony is that he came to bring about victory through defeat. And this is why the cross of Jesus then and today turns the values of our world upside down. You guys tracking with me so far? See, the cross of Jesus goes so far against the grain of the way that our world works. What do you mean? A king died. A king became Everything that we expect flipped upside down. And if we're having a hard time wrapping our minds around it, well, guess what? The disciples did too. And they didn't get it, and they were afraid to even ask. Have you ever been afraid to ask something because you really didn't want to know the answer? Did you ever know just enough to know that you didn't want to know? That was the disciples right here. You see, because in the disciples' minds, they they, they haven't made that flip yet. 
Because in their minds, they were still living for themselves. They were still living for number one in their lives. And, and for them, Jesus was their ticket to the seats of power and influence. Because they knew Jesus was a king, but still they held the worldly values that, well, the king comes and establishes his throne through victory, not defeat. He comes with a sword, and they're going to be right behind him, ready to occupy a seat right beside him. And all of this was confirmed to them even more, because in the beginning of Mark chapter 9, Jesus took Peter, James, and John up to the top of a mountain, and he transfigured before them, meaning like he revealed like visibly this radiant glory of God right in front of them. And while they were terrified, they walked down that mountain feeling like a pretty big deal. Such a big deal that they started on the way down to, through Galilee arguing who was a bigger deal. Who was the most important? Because for them... They didn't see themselves as those to serve Jesus. They saw Jesus as their ticket to the top. Jesus was a means to their end. They were focused on what they could get from him. But you know, Christ did not go to the cross for us so that we could make Christianity about us. that we needed any help, but our minds have been saturated in the midst of a culture that tells you, you're number one. And we learn to evaluate everything, what we have, even our relationships, even our religion, around how well does this serve me? How well does it come back to benefit me? In our world's value system, our happiness and our fulfillment, that is the end. And everything else is a means to that end. That is a natural mindset for us in the midst of the society, is it not? And sometimes we can bring that same mindset to our relationship with Jesus. And then we come to Jesus and we assume, well, Christianity is all about giving me eternal life taking away my worry, giving me a sense of importance, physical health, smooth circumstances, elevating my happiness. Well, that's clearly why Jesus, why I have a relationship with Jesus. But see, Jesus did not go to the cross for us so we might live for ourselves, but for him. Jesus announced in Mark 8, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny him or herself, and take up his or her cross and follow me. That if we are followers of Jesus, that we learn to walk the same steps that he walked. That we learn as he gave himself away, do we do the same for our God and for others. See, if anyone had the right to demand that others serve him, it was Jesus. This was God Almighty in the flesh. Yet, he did not use his rights or his power to serve himself. But instead, he saw it as an opportunity. He became one of us. He loved us even to death. And he brought us into the family of God. That he might share all that is his with us. See, he gave himself for us that we might learn to give ourselves away for others as well. Tell me. 
Jesus gave us two commandments. What are they? Love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and what? Love our neighbor as ourselves. Yeah. You realize that is the end for Jesus. That we would learn to become people who love or give ourselves away as we serve God and one another. In America, we have been given many rights, privileges, freedoms. But do we view these as something to be used for ourselves? Or do we see these as opportunities, God-given opportunities to share Him with others? What purpose does all of this serve? Because that's exactly when we're confronted with Christ of the cross, turns everything upside down. Two weeks ago was Father's Day weekend, right? Father's Day weekend, Shelby, uh, my wife, uh, goes down to Tennessee for three days because there's a big family get-together, which meant that Father's Day weekend, I had all three kids to myself. My kids are eight, six, and four. And so it was daddy kids weekend. And on that Saturday, we had a great time. We played outside a lot. They took their shoes off, ran all around, had a wonderful time, exhausted. I did not give them a bath, but that's whatever. We got up Sunday morning, and Father's Day, you know, like, if I'm honest, right, Father's Day to me is, it's, it's, it's about dad, it's about a steak and a nap, right? Like, that's what Father's Day is supposed to be. Well, I was woken up early, Father's Day morning, with my oldest, Dad, I don't feel good. It was not COVID, okay? Not COVID, just a head cold. It's like a quick parenthesis. I was all right, baby, just go on downstairs. So we went downstairs, grabbed her some medicine. When she was sitting at the table, she goes, Dad, my feet are dirty. I said, Okay, baby, just go in, let's get you, put her feet in the bathtub, put a little soap on them. And she looks at me, she goes, Dad, this is like when Jesus washed the disciples' feet. Now, sometimes I'm kind of dense. I don't always know when God's speaking to me. I, I, I'm trying to get better at that. But I don't see how you can miss that. Right? <laughs> that God's like, Exactly, Kirk. Like, this is the kind of father that I'm calling you to be. And so many times we set out in our lives with this expectation that it is supposed to be about us. And God flips the script on us to say, no, 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 this is the kind of father I've called you to be, like me. And see, Jesus loves us so much that he must confront that in our hearts and our lives. And he must confront it in his disciples as well. And specifically, while he applied it to me in regard to fatherhood two weekends ago, he applies it to his disciples in regard to their relationship with one another. So how does he make that clear to them? And how does he make that clear for us today? Well, Jesus is quite clear, I think, in this passage. You see, Jesus will not tolerate it when we use or stand in the way of each other to serve ourselves. Somebody said it just got real. Again, keep in mind, Jesus knows the cross is coming. He knows where he's headed. 
And he's clear to his disciples, and he gets them in that circle. He says, if anyone would be first, that is, give the top seat in God's kingdom, he or she must be last of all and servant of all. And then he does something interesting. He takes a kid, a child, wraps him up in his arms. Can you imagine being that kid? You have the God Almighty wrap him up in his arms. And he looks at his disciples and he says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And he receives not just me, but he receives the one who sent me, that is God the Father. Now what does that mean? Well, first, we need to understand a couple cultural things. See, kids in that day were the bottom of the social ladder. Right? The, Jesus spoke a language called Aramaic. Well, the Aramaic word for child can also be translated servant. Like, that's how they were viewed. So when Jesus comes and wraps this kid up in his arms, he wasn't just dignifying children, but this child was a visual illustration of all of his humble servants, the children of God. It symbolized that, 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 that child of God. In this moment, Jesus is giving love and dignity and honor to all his humble servants. And he says that even though the rest of society may look past the little ones, the children of God, Jesus goes as far to say that if you receive one of them, you receive me. You receive one of his, you receive Christ. But if you reject, manipulate, or trip one of the children of God, you just mess with heavenly royalty. And Jesus had to make this clear. Why? Because Jesus will not allow his followers to treat each other as a means to their own ends. And there are many ways this works itself out. We see, at least in this passage, three different ones. First, Jesus will not allow us to gather together and look for our own self-promotion. The disciples were arguing as to which of them was the greatest. They were playing verbal king of the mountain, right? Pushing each other down, insulting each other in order to build themselves up and see who could stand at the top. Who could be most important. You know, it's easy for us in the church, too, to think that the positions we hold or how many people look up to us, that somehow determines our value or identity. And then we all of a sudden start to feel as if we need to push somebody else down in order to pull ourselves up. It's easy for us to look at somebody in a position that we think we deserve and to, to start critiquing and complaining about their weaknesses in order to convince ourselves that we deserve to be there instead. That we treat the church and we treat serving Jesus as an opportunity in order to make a name for ourselves. I'm, I'm, I'm preaching to myself just as much as anybody. Jesus has been dealing with me on this for days. <laughs> this mindset not only leads some to self-promotion, but this mindset may also lead us to exclude others to maintain our place. John said, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we stopped him because he wasn't one of us. What was 
interesting is at the beginning of Mark chapter 9, the disciples tried to cast out a demon from somebody and they failed. So what do you think they're feeling in the moment where they see this other guy who's not in their posse, and they see him doing what they could not do? Jealous. Threatened. Oh no, what if uh, Jesus sees that that guy can do something I can't do and I lose my spot? And we all of a sudden feel the need to see that person over there, just kind of block them off of our circle a little bit. Ignore them, not include them, because we got to maintain our click. After all, John, he was one of the disciples. It is very easy to confuse our identity with our position in life. Do we... When we see someone doing something that we're good at, and they're doing it better than we are, do we rejoice in that, or do you feel threatened by that? Last, self-promotion, exclusion. The same mindset may treat, cause us to treat others as competition. Verse 42, Jesus says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me, again, that's the children of God, that's the servants of Jesus, anyone who believes in me, to sin, and to sin can also be translated, if anyone trips or makes one of these little ones stumble, he said, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. I'm only smiling because I'm uncomfortable. What, What does that mean? See, around 40 years before this moment, a Jewish leader named Judas the Galilean led a resistance against Rome. And he and his leaders, once they were captured, faced capital punishment in the same way that this verse describes. And so what Jesus is saying, with this fierce, protecting love, is he says that if anyone trips or makes one of my children stumble, they will face far worse than the judgment to come. You think taking out leaders in Rome gets you that? Well, try to take out a leader in my kingdom. Jesus gets serious, because this is how much he cares for the children of God, that he will not allow us to use, stand in the way, or trip one another without answering to him. But when we see each other as children of God for whom Christ died, it becomes a privilege to serve one another. Instead of tearing each other down in order to step up, we step down in order to build each other up, which does what? Exalts Christ. And when we experience the love of Jesus for us, then we learn to to then give that out to one another. That as Jesus embraced us, so do we embrace each other, embrace each other as children of the King. That we don't just serve those who can serve us back, but we, we model the generous, gracious love of our Father to each other, whether or not they can serve back or not. And see, this is one of the reasons why I love that this church cares so much about children's ministry. Because you could go and you could serve kids all day long, and guess what? They may not give you a lick back. At least not right away. But we do it anyway, because we recognize literally the little ones in front of us. 
Let me ask, who else in our congregation may crave forgiveness? Those who are disabled? The elderly? The lonely? Those struggling? Maybe somebody who has a hard time speaking English? Who is it among us who may feel marginalized, feel left out, who need forgiveness and grace? How can we represent our gracious, heavenly King to them? And how can we not just embrace them, but find ways to develop them, to actually allow them to become known and to know them for ourselves? And as Jesus welcomed us, so do we welcome each other as ambassadors of heaven. That instead of guarding our people, our group, our clique, how can we always keep an open seat? Instead of fencing people off because they have a different style or tradition or personality, how can we show them hospitality as a delegate of the king? Jesus said in this passage, he says, even an ordinary gesture like handing a cup of water to somebody in my name, he says, will not go without a reward. That's a big deal to me. See, we welcome new people in this church really well. That's one thing this church, like, bravo for the ways, like, I hear how many of you reach out and talk to new people who come here. I love that. But how can we also welcome them into our lives, not just our church building? How can we welcome them into relationship, into our homes, so that they develop a sense of belonging among us? And as Jesus builds us up, so do we build up each other as brothers and sisters. As Christ defends and protects us, how might we do the same for each other, standing in the gap when necessary? That can be through prayer. That can be through our financial support. Maybe many of you give to our diaconate offering, right, that helps support people in need. That's an example of this. That through our actions, the way we stand up for each other, man, if we hear somebody talk bad about somebody else and hear behind their back, that we stand up for that person. We seek to protect each other, honor each other. Because see, the church that builds each other up learns to trust each other. And as we learn to trust each other, we become more honest with each other. And as we become honest and transparent, that becomes the kind of environment within which we can heal and grow rooted in Christ together. See, man, I don't want us just to come here on Sunday, receive something, and go home. I'm grateful that you do, but I, I don't want that to be where we stop. That we are meant to, to be a community, committed to one another. That when we say we're going to show up, we show up. When we say we're going to do something, we do it. When we, we rally around, even when we're not asked that we learn to be that kind of community to one another, exemplifying the cross of Jesus and that kind of love to one another. And as each of us takes that step in the way of Jesus and we learn to serve one another, this is who we will become. Because how we serve each other is evidence of how we've allowed Christ's love to serve. Now, I see no better way to end looking at a passage like this than to celebrate communion together. You know, at this table, it's the, that's cool. 
squirrel. Um, At this table, we not just remember and celebrate our relationship with God, that He has given everything for us, that He he gave His body and His blood that we might be a member of His family. But we recognize that not just that is happening here, but there's also a horizontal element to this table. Because when we come to this table, we don't just take it alone, but we take it as a family. And we recognize, we come to this table that no one is elevated above anybody else. So we all came to Jesus equally in need, and we all came to Him equally forgiven. And so we all come to this table as one family, brothers and sisters, with each other. And so before we take this, I do want to make sure that each of our hearts are sincere. And what I mean by that is that sometimes we try to take this before truly searching our hearts. And in particular, I'm going to pray in a moment, and then I'm going to give us an opportunity to just be silent. And to say, God, is there anybody, maybe even in this room, that you have bitterness toward, that you're holding unforgiveness toward? Somebody that you, man, there is a rift in your relationship. And while you can't make the other person make a decision, like you know that that's pollution in your heart. I want you to take a moment and talk to God and give that to the Lord. And guess what? If that person is even in this room, before you take communion, get up and go make it right with that person. And what if somebody sees me? But what if you don't obey God? far more important that we take this with a sincere heart because if if it's not sincere this is just something we do but this is meant to be something that nourishes our souls so i'm going to give us a moment i'm going to pray and give us a moment of silence to allow god to search your heart if you need to confess something to him before you take it do it now if you need to get up go do it now if you need to go to the bathroom don't worry we won't judge you if you're going someplace else right like I know sometimes we get nervous about these things. Don't worry about what people think, right? Like, it's just, it's about our hearts right with God. Because how we serve one another is evidence of how we've allowed Christ's love to serve us. Jesus, as we gather to remember and celebrate your great gift for us, the gift that just blows us away, Lord, I pray that you allow this to nourish not just our bodies, but our souls. And if there's anything that we are holding on to, if there, if there, there's a rift in a relationship or anger or bitterness in any relationships in here, God, that we'd be motivated to get it right. Because, Lord, how can we come and thank you for your forgiveness while refusing to forgive somebody else? So, Lord, can we make our hearts right with you? And, guys, we can let the kids in right after this moment of silence.
but you also want to speak with a sincere heart. So Lord, you lay these things down before you. Grace and peace with all that you have. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let me receive the little one. Anybody, before we take communion, does anybody here not have a communion cup, did not grab one on your way in? Ushers, if you could grab these. Just keep your hand raised if you don't have a communion cup, just make sure you get you one. communion cups out by these back double doors, and so if you came in any other door, you might have missed one. All right. One thing we want to make clear is that you do not have to be a member of this church in order to take communion here. Right? Like, if, if, you, if Jesus is Lord over your life, and you've given him your life, he has forgiven your sin. It is by his grace, through faith, that ultimately brings us into relationship with Christ. And if that's you, you are welcome at this table, whether you're a member of this church or not. Parents, we make it clear that you can determine for your own child if your child is ready to receive this or not. We do ask that parents uh, actually evaluate the authenticity of it because we want it to be meaningful uh, to our kids just as it's meaningful to us when we take it. But if you'll take the cup, peel off the layer that gets you to the cracker, Hold that cracker in your hand for a moment. But on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it. He says, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. supper, he took the cup, and he says, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. And Jesus, as we join with your followers across the world in taking this meal together, may you unite us together in you. May you solidify our 